Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, dopamine is one of the most important neurotransmitters in your brain. We often think of it as something related to pleasure, how the brain reacts to gratification, but it does much, much more than that. The problem is we may not be using it properly or in a healthy way. Tonight, we learn how to use that powerful neurotransmitter to its full potential. One of the shortest and most bizarre careers in congressional history came to a sudden and historic end today. Lawmakers voting to expel indicted Republic Congressman from New York, George Santos, after just 11 months in office. Only the sixth member to be expelled that way. We look into what happened and why. Most Canadians have long seen the benefits of immigration, but new polls suggest a majority now think that Ottawa's immigration targets are too high, mainly due to short-term issues such as housing. Is this a temporary thing or something more lasting? What could the impact be in the long run? We have a look. But first, are you ready for retirement? That's an urgent question on many minds, especially the some 3 million Canadians between the ages of 55 and 65 right now, a huge cohort. And if the answer is no, well, you're definitely not alone, according to new research. We find out why and what you can do to try to put yourself onto firmer foot. Are you ready for retirement? Uh, That's an urgent question on the minds of some 3 million Canadians between the ages of 55 and 65 right now. A huge cohort. If the answer is uh, not really, well, you're definitely not alone. A wave of Canadians gearing up for retirement say they think they'll be forced to make significant cuts to live comfortably for the rest of their lives, according to analysis from Deloitte Canada. Uh, The survey found that only 14% of near retirees expect to be comfortable in retirement. That means able to absorb unexpected costs without much stress. And 55% really think they're going to have to make some pretty big changes to their lifestyle to avoid outliving their financial savings. Here's what financial expert Rabina Ahmed Haq had to say to The Morning Show on Global this week. Anyone retiring into this economy would have seen their uh, their investments lower than they were two years ago. If they were banking on selling their home and taking equity out of that, that is also lower. So there's a number of things that are happening right now where it just happens that if you are turning 65 in the next couple of years, you may be feeling like, ooh, the, the retirement I thought I was going to have is not actually a reality because some of my financial situations have changed. Uh, Rubina Ahmed Haq speaking to uh, the morning show on Global uh, this week. Of course, I'm 53 now. I just turned 53. So this is something I've had to start to think about a lot. I mean, you're supposed to think about it <laughs> throughout your years, but it seems more so much more imminent when you hit your 50s for obvious reasons. We thought we'd go right to the source on this one. Juan Kim is a partner with Deloitte Canada and author of the report, and he joins me now. Uh, Juan Kim, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ben. I think um, this mightn't come as a huge surprise to people. Maybe the numbers, the numbers. I mean, you you sort of pointed out that they were quite staggering. What have you found about people's just overall, how, what people are feeling, Canadians are feeling about their retirement right now? It's not particularly positive. No, and, and we, we certainly uh, saw that as well. Uh, so based on our study, which included about 4,000 uh, Canadians who are between the ages of 55 and 65, so really the the third dream, the representative of the three million Canadians who are Canadian households who are set to retire over the next decade, a vast majority of them were feeling overwhelmed. Right, seventy-three percent felt like they're not prepared for retirement at all, 
And I think that that shows uh, when you actually look into their financial holdings and uh, the income required to sustain their lifestyles, their expected lifestyles in retirement. I think that number translates right down into why they're not feeling very confident. Yeah. And and only 14% of near retirees in that group thought they'd be comfortable in retirement. I thought that was, or be able to absorb unexpected costs. I thought that was, um, I mean, that means 86% of people don't feel like they're quite ready yet, which is a huge number. When you dig into it a bit, you mentioned it, is it just not enough savings? Is that it? Just not enough income to make sure that you're going to be okay in those years after you, you stop working? Yeah, for sure. And, and just to, uh, sorry to be grim, but just to be clear, it's 14% who w- will be secure enough when they're feeling secure. So right. 86% will not be able to actually sustain the lifestyle that they want, which is actually worse, right? Because uh, it's not about how they feel. It's actually based on our, our analysis where they're actually landing at. Uh, so to answer your question, what, what's le- what's leading to this issue? Of of course, the rising cost we all know is an issue, but and and the savings rate is an issue, but it's it's the sheer it's the number of factors that are actually all kind of coming together at the same time, and they've been all traveling in the wrong direction for the past twenty years. I think that's what's making this issue particularly worse. Think about the savings rate for the past twenty years. Both our uh, pension participation rate in the private sector, so at workplace, how much people actually elect to participate in your pension programs, have gone down. And individual savings rate into register programs have also gone down in real dollars. So people just weren't able to save as much. When we asked why, prevailing reason was cost of living was too, was increasing too high. On the other side, in addition to cost of living increases or inflation that are in, in front of us, it's also their uh, rising care costs, right, which is rapidly rising because of supply demand issues in the market. It's also the fact that Canadians will live longer, which is a positive news. But now they have to cover for additional years that they didn't think they had to cover when they're planning for retirement. And bond deals, what people you know typically put retirement fund funds into, have gone down consistently over the past 20 years, except this year. But we do expect it'll actually go down to a certain level. It's all these factors accumulating together, I think, that's creating this particularly worrisome picture about retirement readiness for Canadians going forward. Right. So we're living longer with less savings, with investments that make less return, and with later year expenses that are higher. You add that all up, and you're right; it can't be it can't be a particularly good picture. You, you, it was interesting to note, I thought, when in looking at the report, that it's not that you object to the idea of having a set amount that you need to retire on, but you think that that's misplaced. That that a set amount isn't what you should be looking at. Instead, it should be looking at what your annual re- revenue is going to be. Yeah, I think set amount is a, is a convenient method, right, to help you understand how much you need. But I think realistically, especially as you get into this last 10 years of retirement, it's also important to think about what exactly is going to be the lifestyle you're going to be able to afford and really start thinking in the terms of what type of things you're spending on today that will continue on, what type of things you're spending today that you can decrease comfortably, what type of things will actually cost more in retirement. And actually thinking about that more granular planning will help you understand exactly what is the amount of money you need and therefore actually plan out what happens if cost of living actually goes up much higher than we expect. So you can actually make more uh, accurate assessment. And I think partially it's the individuals who should do that, but I think it's partially the onus is actually in the financial services sector, like I was saying, including us, to help Canadians actually do that easier by coming up with better tools. We have certainly have data. We certainly have technology to do so. And I think it's the accessibility of this near retirement advice and planning that's so critical to help Canadians solve this issue. 
Right. I think part of the problem, honestly, Juan Kim, is that people just put it off. It's it's so terrifying that people just don't want to think about it. You know, it's not like you sort of you, you pay for your RSPs every year and you do that and you, and you see what kind of um, accumulation there is there. But you know that you're falling short, right? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that obviously that there are different groups here, right? There are certain groups that are more comfortable, certain groups that you know are, are just don't have enough. And and But there's also this big middle group that we don't pay much attention to. And, and that was an interesting aspect of the study as well, that of the report. That there is a large group of Canadians that kind of fall into the middle here that uh, that don't have a lot to turn to uh, in retirement if they find themselves short. Yeah, thanks for calling that out. Uh, I think that's perhaps one of the most profound findings we had, surprising findings we had. Uh, so if we actually look at the different cohorts of near retirees uh, today, the, the group of people who are going to be impacted the hardest as a result of un- underpreparedness of retirement uh, retirement is actually the middle class Canadians. So it's the middle 55% of Canadians who will have to make significant adjustments to their expected lifestyle. Sometimes, and for many of them, it's actually to a degree where you're controlling your spend to bare minimum at some point in your retirement. So that's the group that we really have to pay attention to. Because like the bottom 31%, sure, they'll, I think we rely a lot on the public programs like CPP or OAS to retire. Those programs actually do a pretty good job. Like our public system has actually innovated quite well over the past decades. Uh, we have the lowest poverty rate among seniors, uh, one of the lowest uh, globally. So those people pre, uh, for the bottom 31%, they will actually, their pre-retirement income will likely be preserved after retirement. But it's the next group up who have been working hard for the past four decades, saved some, but probably not enough, uh, who knew they were falling behind, who will face the situation where they'll have to make a lot of sacrifices or they'll just have to live in worry that you might run out of money at some point, uh, especially when unexpected costs happen to you. Right. So that's the group who are used to earning earning a steady paycheck. When that paycheck goes away, it demands a huge change in the way they live their lives. That's, that's and, that's and, exactly yeah. right. and, and, yeah. and to your point, like I, I think at the end of the day, we can look at retirement issue as with the bar of about, uh, avoiding poverty as our standard. But I think we have to frame this issue as how do we actually help Canadians, Canadian near retirees, help sustain the sustain life that they deserve, with and with at minimum modest lifestyle because they work so hard for so many years, right? And and having to not having to worry about you know putting uh, food on the table every month, right? Like I think that should be the framing of how we should be looking at retirement issue going forward. You also mentioned Juan that that there is, I mean, it's never too late to start, right? It's sometimes it's not. You don't want to throw up your hands and give up by reading this report. This is meant to encourage people to just wake up to this reality. Absolutely. There, I think there are a few things uh, Canadian, especially those near retirees can do. First of all, um, I think getting that accurate picture of what does your post-retirement income needed every month will, will be, I think is a really important starting point. Uh, because uh, especially if you don't have saved enough to lead a comfortable lifestyle all throughout your retirement, like being able to modulate where you, where and how you spend money in the early years is going to be really important. Also will give you a realistic goal of how much of a, a lifestyle you can actually afford in retirement. A second thing would be for the remaining years with earning power, being as aggressive as you can be, right? That to your point is like never is too late, right? To actually start putting more money into savings vehicles and registered products is going to be really important. Uh, one of the things we also want to call out is how to deal with un- unexpected costs, uh, especially when it, when it comes to care. In Canada, unfortunately, about 50% of seniors uh, today, uh, over 75 in Canada, either have a disability or will require uh, a need for long-term care. 
And that cost can put a lot of Canadians off the balance when it comes to retirement readiness. Uh, so the time to actually get additional coverage uh, is actually now, right? Because getting getting that after you retire is going to be less affordable, less accessible. So really visiting those options while you're employed, I think is also really important. And finally, I think you also have to, uh, we also have to, as a society, start looking into what it actually means, especially if these uh, near retirees are going to live another 20 plus years after retiring, what does it actually mean to have a second career after retirement? So looking at areas that is actually aligned to your interest, right? And and looking at what type of skill sets you actually need to, to adjust for that second career is also going to be really important going forward. Right. Because potentially you can continue to earn in a way you don't have to necessarily work 90 hours a week, but you Absolutely. can continue to lend your skills. And that can make a big difference in terms of that uh, that income that you're bringing in especially for that middle 55%, right? Uh, but I also would like to call out though, like we can't put all of this burden on individuals. No, I think the, the financial services sector in Canada has a duty to help Canadians actually uh, fulfill uh, and avoid this issue. And there are many ways we can actually do that. Uh, if we lean into our spirit of innovation and the spirit of collaboration across various players and with the public sector, so on and so forth. I mean, this year, of course, I think for anybody who's on a fixed income, the last you know eighteen months has been, and anyone who's looking at a future, uh, looking at the retirement of the future, the last eighteen months has been a real, a real wake up call. And I imagine some of what you found in your report reflects just what has happened to affordability and inflation uh, over the last uh, you know year and a bit. Absolutely, and, and what's to be honest, a little bit scarier is uh, it's been a couple of months since we conducted the research and we've been writing the paper. So if actually, if I were to repeat this study right now with, with the surveys, like is the, today's date, I do think we're going to find a grimmer picture because your average retirement portfolio balance would have actually gone down, right? Uh, average inflation that you need to assume would have actually gone up. I think it's really important to keep continue to keep an eye out for these different vectors that can happen. I think that's where more accessible uh, financial plan or a near a retirement plan, like actual retirement planning and advice is much needed. To, so to help Canadians get an accurate view into what would happen to their retirement uh, lifestyle as these different factors actually occur. Juan Kim, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, it again. It's a sobering but necessary report. We, we we don't always like to read bad news, but sometimes bad news is just what we need to hear. So thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for paying attention to this very important issue for all of us. <laughs> This is an interesting story this week, and I think this is a really important one uh, going forward. For decades now, Canadians' views on immigration have been pretty steady and very positive. In a survey done last fall, consider this by Environics, uh, 7 in 10 people surveyed backed the country's immigration levels. That was the largest majority they had recorded in 45 years on that particular question. That's really solid support. And of course, successive federal governments have maintained high immigration levels, averaging about 250,000 new permanent residents each year since the late 1990s, really as a strategy to grow the population and the economy. There are jobs concerns, there's the, the birth rate has fallen and so on. So it is necessary for the economy to welcome new people in, right? Absolutely. Um, last year, for instance, Canada welcomed more than 430,000 newcomers, 465 expected in 2023. And in announcing new immigration targets for the next three years in early November, the federal government is sticking to that same strategy. Um, immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Minister Mark Miller a month ago announcing that Canada would welcome around 500,000, 500, half a million new permanent residents to the country annually in 2024, 25 and 26 with a promise that that number would stabilize in 2026. Here's what he had to say. These immigration levels will help set the pace of Canada's economic 
and population growth while moderating its impact on critical systems such as infrastructure and housing. Right. I mean, that is the same argument we've heard for years. But a new poll out this week again shows that a fast-growing number of Canadians think those target numbers are too high. A poll by Abacus Data has found the percentage of people who say they oppose the country's current immigration levels has increased by six points since July, with 67% of Canadians now saying that taking in 500,000 permanent residents a year is too much. Why? Well, the cost of living and housing is the big one of the big factors here. Questions over access to health care have come in as well. And they sort of combine, according uh, to the pollsters, to a, quote, sense of scarcity. And that perhaps is what's, what's driving it here. Uh, there are political and regional differences here as well. 82% of people who voted for the Conservatives in 2021 think levels are too high compared with 63% of NDP voters and 61% of Liberal voters. Geographically, it's highest in Alberta and Ontario at 70% lowest in BC at 64% and Quebec at 60, but pretty consistent right across the country. So is this a temporary shift related only to those immediate pressures on affordability and housing and so on? Or are we witnessing something more profound here? A population asking its federal government to slow down. With more on this is Michael Donnelly. He's a political science professor at the University of Toronto and he joins me now. Michael, thank you. Glad to be here. It's been interesting. I mean, I've followed this issue for a very long time, and, and there's been sort of a consistency in Canadians' views about the great benefits of immigration. And we're seeing um, we're seeing a shift. It's a nuanced one. It's a qualified one, but it's still a shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, Canadian attitudes toward immigration got much more positive over the course of the 1990s uh, and into the early 2000s, and then sort of leveled off and and were at at a, a pretty consistent level of, of happy about immigration. Um, maybe a third of people were, were pretty skeptical and maybe a third of people were were very excited about it. And, and then lots of people were sort of satisfied and okay with it. Um, and, and then, as you say, recently, uh, things look like they might be changing. Um, a, a number of polls have come out lately uh, highlighting certain aspects of immigration that are are, are really troubling to people. Uh, and I think that that middle third of people are, are starting to, to sour on it, and uh, at least in some aspects. Yeah, it's interesting because I think when you look at, uh, at least a, there's been a few polls out of late that have looked into this, that the attitudes towards immigration in the long term, the benefits of the ones that have always existed, continue. But there seems to be a short-term hesitancy now around crucial issues such as housing and so on. So it's almost sort of a qualified opposition to, right. to immigration levels, which is interesting. Yeah, it is. And and it's it's consistent with what we've seen elsewhere in other countries. Um, you know, there's there's a long uh, tradition in political science of of seeing issues like housing as particularly important for conversations around immigration. Um, and, and we've seen this come up uh, in Canada recently. Uh, I don't know if you've you followed the news in, in Dublin. Mm -hmm. uh, Ireland's another country with a, a serious housing crisis and, and has, have seen some real flare-ups in uh, anger over immigration there as well. And, and that's also a country that had been much more positive than many other countries about immigration like Canada. 
Yeah, certainly Ireland uh, with a history of sending sending people abroad as immigrants was was quite was quite open. Even when I was I lived there briefly, was quite oh, really? progressive. Yeah, quite progressive about its views towards immigration. Uh, what do you make of this then? Because it it I mean obviously if you're Canadian, you see the the talk the sort of the the conversation around immigration that takes place in the U.S. Certainly around Brexit, there was conversations recently in the U.K. around immigration. Countries like Sweden and the Netherlands, there's been conversations around immigration. Where do you think the Canadian one is headed? So I, I think a lot depends there on on two big factors. Uh, the, the first is uh, what happens to the housing market. Um, it's it's undoubtedly the case that that people feel the pressure of of uh, housing prices and and feel you know quite reasonably that that a greater demand for for housing is going to raise prices uh, if if supply doesn't keep up. Uh, and so that is going to matter going forward and and. What will matter there is is what do governments do to make sure that housing gets built uh, to house people who come uh, who who immigrate to Canada. Uh, the other big issue is the strategic decisions made by political leaders. Um, you know that uh, what you see from some of these surveys uh, is that people are still very positive about some aspects of immigration. Uh, if they're thinking about you know the the need for uh, workers, then they then they think immigration is good. If they're thinking about the uh, the need for people to to uh, take care of older older Canadians when they retire, then they're they're pretty enthusiastic about uh, immigration. Uh, but if they're thinking about things like housing, things like overcrowded schools, then they then some of some people start to sour. And one of the main factors driving uh, what they think about when they think about immigration is what the political discourse uh, around it is. And, and so political leaders have a, a real big role to play here in deciding uh, what, what direction immigration politics takes. Uh, historically, one, I think the main reason that Canada has had uh, sort of an open, positive uh, politics of immigration is that none of the, the political parties wanted to to make it a, a a negative issue, none of the political parties wanted to take it on as as something that uh, they opposed. Uh, and and even if different parties had different overall attitudes toward immigration, none of them were coming out and and banging on the table and saying uh, we we have too many immigrants. Um, and that's that's something that may change. Uh, we 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 just don't know. Yeah, I mean, the first past the post system certainly sets up as, you know, if we don't have proportional representation, it's certainly, we don't have as many sort of issue parties, right? I, I suspect we may That's have right. seen a, a party. I mean, we've seen the, the People's Party come out. We have, though, I gather, I mean, if you look at the whole Roxham Road issue in Quebec, that was yes. a veil, veiled immigration issue. The whole, I don't want to, you know, go off after the unions or anything on this one because they have their concerns. But the whole foreign workers issue at the EV battery plant in Windsor feels a bit like an immigration issue. You could see the parties sort of dipping their toes into it to figure out how to handle it. Yeah, and, and and a lot of that is is somebody who might feel like they oppose immigration or or who they think there's a a, a polit politician who thinks there's a market for that uh, has to find a way to make an anti-immigrant case that doesn't turn off immigrants in key ridings, and and that's that's always been very difficult to do. Uh, but when you have flare-ups like Roxham Road, when you have uh, a particularly heinous crime by an immigrant, or when you have uh, uh, particular issues uh, that that you can focus the the rhetoric on that issue, that narrow piece of the immigration argument, uh, and sort of have this tone that starts to imply a broader argument about immigration. Then you you do start to see politicians taking that approach. 
Do you get the sense, though, when I look at what's happened over the last, and this applies equally to to the different different parties that have been in power over the last twenty five years, uh, that we've taken Canadians liberal attitudes towards immigration for granted a little bit, that not enough planning was actually done to make sure that people were comfortable with levels of immigration and sort of always touching base to see, okay, well, you know, we're going to, we know it's necessary for the economy. We know it's necessary for jobs, but how is everyone feeling about it? And you get the sense that, that maybe successive federal governments have taken their eye off that ball. So I, th- I think they've taken their eye off the ball on, on housing um, mm-hmm. and, and taking their eye off the ball on, on integration. Uh, and, and making sure that immigrants who come in can succeed right away. Uh, you know, we the, far too many immigrants don't have their credentials recognized, uh, and so it, it becomes very difficult to uh, to succeed in the labor market to the degree that they might want to. Um, I think there's some question here. Uh, there, there's a real federal-provincial disconnect, I think, uh, where things like housing, things like higher education, things like uh, uh, qualifications tend to be at the provincial level, whereas obviously the big uh, immigration decisions are are made at the federal level, and so that that has created a, a bit of an imbalance, a bit of a disconnect. When you when you look at where this could go, uh, and you're right. I mean, so far in terms of the political discourse, there hasn't really been a major Canadian party that's felt comfortable sort of running on anything that even resembles a sort of suspicion of immigrants platform. And you mentioned the reasons why, because there are uh, it could be a real vote. Uh, it could be a vote destroyer as well as a vote getter. Uh, how do you think that I mean, what would you be looking for to see that change? Because clearly parties are just doing they're just doing the math, right? They're doing the math. Yeah, so so I think what what could change that would be uh, parties who who see an opportunity to pick out particular pieces of the uh, of the immigration policy uh, realm and say that this is being done really poorly uh, and and use that as a way in to sort of tell immigrants and and people who are friendly to immigrants who are already here that it's not this isn't about you this isn't a, a critique of of how you got here it's a critique of what policy that's going on it's a critique of the the future immigrants uh because obviously the future immigrants are not not going to be voting it's the the people you're afraid of really offending are people who uh are immigrants and and would feel offended if you said that immigration makes canada worse off it's been interesting to see, too, an increasing number of stories about people who've come to this country and left and turned around and gone back because of because of the very same issues that people now feel like those targets are too high, uh, mainly around housing qualifications and integration, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, return return migration has always existed. But but yes, it's certainly the case that people are showing up here and and seeing that, you know, you you might have come with a. a an engineering degree and and might not be able to practice as an engineer, not just for a six month probationary period or something, but for an extended period of time. Uh, And if you come here and you uh, do a a two year college degree, um, you you were probably promised that this is this is the pathway to a a middle class lifestyle in Canada. And and it's increasingly looking like that's a difficult path to to try. Yeah. I mean, we know still and, and, you know, the business community is still pressuring the federal government to bring in more uh, more immigration because they need the workers. Um, we know that that's still an important part of this. If you're the federal government now, what do you do? And I think you mentioned the housing issue, which is perhaps the most important. But what do you do to, to find that balance to make sure that that Canadians in general 
are a little more comfortable with these levels of immigration at the same time as making sure that Canada still gets um, the immigration that it clearly needs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think certainly something needs to be done around uh, the the total number of, of foreign workers, of temporary foreign workers. I think that program is is useful for industry in some contexts and, and can be done in a, a, an efficient way, but I think is is probably stretched too far right now. Um, I also think that uh, the federal government in the province provinces need to get their head around uh, what kinds of student visas are uh, most beneficial for Canada. Um, you know, I'm biased because I'm at, at the University of Toronto, but I, I think students who come to the University of Toronto uh, go on and, and succeed uh, at a, a very high rate. Um, and so I don't want to see that, see those opportunities cut. But I think there are institutions, particularly institutions that are uh, cooperating with private colleges and universities or, or for profits uh, institutions that that are not adding much to to the Canadian economy. And I think I think the federal government needs to sit with the provinces and say, how are we going to define where our student visas should go? Yeah, I get the sense, too, that just as this government's current government's fortunes have fallen, at least in popular, according to the polling, so has there the the trust of most people for them to get things right, such yeah. as immigration. Yeah. And, and one thing we know is that uh, in the over the course, as immigration attitudes were sort of stabilizing in the 90s and into the 2000s, uh, what the change there wasn't in overall levels of support for immigration, but in the extent to which immigration attitudes sorted by party. Right. Uh, and so it is now very clear that uh, voters for the Liberal Party are identified with a pro-immigrant party. Uh, and and yes, as as this government uh, sort of stretches on and and gets the perception that uh, that it, that it's not doing other things competently. Uh, it's that's going to bleed into issues like immigration with which it's it's clearly identified. So a last word then to you. Uh, we've seen this is not the first poll. I believe there was another one out uh, not long ago that had very similar results to this Abacus data one. Yeah. And you don't want to take polls too, too seriously. I mean, they are what they are. But uh, what do you walk away from now with with what we've seen in the fall of 2023? So I, I, I think we're at a, a point where uh, where that middle third of Canadians who are are open to immigration, but not, a, not necessarily uh, enthusiastic, are, are focused on the negative aspects, are focused on the really challenging housing market, focused on uh, questions of, of whether the, the programs are designed well and, and uh, fit for purpose. And I think whether it's this government or, or the next government, whoever forms it after the next election, uh, they need to really convince the public that they're solving the problems that they're they're not just going on doing what they were doing in the past because that's that's what they were doing michael thank you so much thanks a lot on this vote the yeas are 311 the nays are 114 with two recorded as present two-thirds voting in the affirmative the resolution is adopted and a motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. There you had it. That was uh, now 
I'll be honest with you. We try not to talk too much about American politics on this show for the for this very simple reason that if you want to listen to people talk about American politics, it's on 24 hours a day in other places, right? But I found the story of George Santos to be incredibly interesting. Uh, how he got elected, uh, you know, the, the sort of the lies on the CV, just the whole thing was kind of this strange sideshow. And we'll get to that because I think it was a sideshow. But with what you just heard, one of the shortest and most bizarre careers in congressional history came to a sudden and historic end today. And that's saying something these days. Lawmakers voting 311 to 114, including Republicans, to expel indicted Republican Congressman George Santos of New York after just 11 months in office. He's only the sixth member to be expelled from the House in history. He was the first to be kicked out or to be expelled from Congress in history. He was the first to be kicked out without, without having uh, been indicted, without having been convicted uh, of a crime since the Confederacy. Um, something Santos was eager to point out when he spoke to the media yesterday. He didn't say anything today, by the way. An unfortunate circumstance that I have to sit here and watch American people waste, uh, Congress waste the American people's time over and over again on something that is the power of the people, not the power of Congress, which is to remove and elect, to elect and remove members of Congress. Yeah, I don't know what the folks uh, that voted him in were thinking at the time. Now, keep in mind, the 35-year-old faces criminal corruption charges and accusations of misspending campaign money, including on luxury items and spa treatments. He was already in hot water for his pretty fictional resume that included such fabrications as attending New York University, which he did not, working at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, which he hadn't, and claiming Jewish heritage, telling voters his grandparents had fled the Nazis during the Second World War. Also, not true. Now, this was a slightly tough call, as you can imagine, in highly partisan Washington these days. This was a bit of a tough call for Republicans, where the balance of power in the House of Representatives, Representatives is a slim one. They're going to have to have a new election now, and that could swing to the Democrats. So there was some politicking going on here, but ultimately, a majority of Republicans or many Republicans voted to uh, oust him as well. So let's head to Washington now, where Fridays in December tend to be pretty quiet not today. Joining me now is Casey Burgett. He is the director of the Legislative Affairs Program at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University in Washington. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Uh, any surprise that this finally happened? This wasn't the first vote, but uh, but this one was uh, this one was successful. George Santos is now gone. I wouldn't say a surprise. This has been a long time coming, more like, and and we've seen uh, efforts to expel him. We've seen public and private efforts to, to pressure him to resign, but his defiance has resulted in him uh, facing a, a very rare and historical expulsion from the House. So uh, it's not a typical Friday here on Capitol Hill. No. And, and the historic aspect of this uh, is, is pretty remarkable. This does not happen, happen often. It certainly doesn't happen often if you haven't actually been in, uh, convicted. convicted It certainly doesn't happen if you haven't been convicted of anything. Exactly. And so we've seen upwards of 20 members of both House and Senate throughout history. So even then, not a lot of members given our 240 plus years at, at this thing. Um, but the vast majority, in fact, all but two dealt with civil war expulsions, basically people representing states that had uh, seceded from the union. And we've only had two members of Congress expelled for basically the corruption or uh, self-enrichment charges that, that George Santos faced today. And both of those cases, the last one about two decades ago, uh, was from a member convicted. Both of these members expelled were convicted in a, a criminal court of law. 
this obviously wasn't the case for for Santos, and and that was a reason for many, particularly on the Republican side, to uh, to not vote to expel him, though there weren't enough of those members, and he's now gone. Yeah. What what was the hesitancy here? Because, I mean, obviously there's the numbers game and there's the team game. So there was a couple mm-hmm. of different things going on, but certainly there was a precedent being set here that I could I would suspect, given given the polarization these days, I, I can expe- I would expect that some on the Republican side would have been a little uncomfortable with setting it, maybe not setting a precedent, but certainly doing something for the first time in more than 100 and some odd years. Yeah, there there was that argument for a long time, and even including the Speaker of the House this week, that they had reservations about setting a precedent for expelling a member of Congress when they haven't been convicted in a court of law. And there's something to that argument, but it doesn't carry a lot of weight when you remember that the sample size we're talking about is only two members, right. and that the, the House and Senate have a constitutional responsibility. They're the only ones that can deem uh, their colleagues worthy to serve in the chamber for which they serve. And they have a mechanism for expulsion and they use that here today with a huge, uh, a high barrier given our incredible polarization where it takes two thirds of the chamber to vote to expel. And so that's a really high uh, uh, barrier, a really high threshold that you're not gonna really set a precedent for people of just being willy nilly kicking people out. The reality is, is that parties are so polarized right now that we're never gonna have a party with enough seats to unilaterally kick out a member of the opposite party, which is kind of the precedent argument that we're fearing here. And the reality is, is that George Santos uh, has been criminally indicted. Those uh, those cases are ongoing, and they often extend past a certain Congress anyway. The, the the court calendar doesn't match up with the congressional calendar, and there's been a huge investigation with the body internal to Congress responsible for this stuff with the Ethics Committee. They did an exhaustive investigation. They found criminal wrongdoing. The chairman of that bipartisan committee, by the way, a Republican himself, was the one who offered this expulsion uh, resolution, meaning that. This isn't a Democrat or Republican issue. This is kind of a health of the institution itself. And for enough of those members, they they said that this person, George Santos, is not worthy to, to, to hold a seat any longer. I mean, Santos is almost, almost defies belief uh, as a mm-hmm. as an elected official. I mean, uh, at any level of government, I mean, what he's accused of having done and what he's found to have lied about is I mean, it, it was. I mean, there's many other people in Congress who mightn't be worthy of of tons of respect, but Santos was in a league all by himself. I think when it came to this sort of stuff, a hundred percent, right? Like, and we've seen this from the minute that he was sworn in with his resume lies. There's just been a drip, drip, drip of just bad behavior, right? And it's not necessarily criminal into the point where, and, and, and he actually reached the point of criminality. So to, to expel someone for lying about their resume, which is what we found early on in his tenure is one thing, but everything we've we've heard and corroborated in the ethics committee investigation and the criminal indictment suggests is that this goes beyond just kind of that being a jerk kind of, of behavior. This is criminal behavior where he's using his office to enrich himself. More and more we learn about this stuff. And I don't, uh, to me, that's the precedent you want to set, right? Like uh, to, to, to judge your members based on all of it you're fearing, uh, having been found out that the precedent you want to set is that you can't do that and expect to keep your seat. Criminality is one thing. He'll have his day in court, but this isn't that. This is judging, uh, does he deserve to represent 750,000 constituents in New York? And my argument in the House agreement to me is that, no, he doesn't. His constituency are actually worse served because he's just such a pariah, such a toxic figure that he can't do the job. And, and they agree. Yeah. I, I, and, there, you know, there was a time where he would have resigned out of shame, but I guess that's too optimistic <laughs> for now, right? Exactly. And that's where we the precedent argument also loses a little water in that 
uh, there's only been two members that had to be con criminally convicted and expelled, but that that ignores the the number of people who resigned in disgrace. Usually, how this works is that you're uh, uh, sh socially shamed, you are uh, ostracized within the chamber itself, and party leaders, particularly within your own party, put the public pressure on you and private pressure on you to just resign your seat. And that's when you saw people uh, do the mia culpa and they put their head down and they resign and go quietly. George Santos went about the exact opposite direction, right? A very public defiance, uh, calling on Twitter or the House floor, any space he was able to get some volume, he went there and and said, this is a, a witch hunt. And it's just not the same thing. So it's probably a product of our, our media-driven age. But he, he didn't follow that historical precedent of when you're caught doing a lot of these bad things, you resign rather than face the 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 fate of your colleagues deeming you unworthy with an expulsion vote. Part of this one, I mean, you you watch Congress very closely and have for a very long time. Part of this one from afar, so, you know, particularly sitting on the other side of the border, it felt a bit, it felt a little bit like a diversion. Like he was such an obvious, you know, punching bag to some extent because he was so completely unfit to be there, that it felt like it took a lot of attention way away from some of the more the more serious things that are going on in government right now that might be a bit scarier and have more impact on the future of America than someone as as much of a sideshow as George Santos had become. Exactly. And I think a lot of Republicans, uh, whether publicly or privately, would agree with that, that they're just mostly tired of talking and 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 to some degree defending this character, that you wake up every day uh, trying to dodge reporters, not about anything politically related or policy related, but this person specifically. And when you carry the same party label as someone like that, you, uh, you your, your instinct is to defend them, right? Particularly within the House where they have an historically small uh, majority status. Every vote matters that much. And so your instinct is to want to defend your own. And that just gets harder and harder to do the more that the, the wrongdoing comes out and is corroborated. And then couple that with the the, the actions of, of George Santos, right? The way that he is just so public publicly been defiant in in facing these charges, not taking any uh, semblance of humility of or acceptance of wrongdoing and and basically just uh, uh, pouring gas on the flame that when uh, historically, at least other members would 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 try to, you know, put their head down and, and wait for another scandal to take over the, the news cycle. And this all comes at a time when they have a lot to do. Uh, with with Congress. We have funding deadlines coming up. We have a, a National Defense Authorization Act to pass, which basically funds the Department of Defense. There's a lot they can do and should do and need to do. And it, it definitely isn't dealing with their own members who clearly from the get-go uh, didn't necessarily deserve the seat uh, based on his actions and, and his misdeeds. Yeah, it's it's interesting to look at him though as as not necessarily the disease, but the symptom, right? I mean, mm. sometimes you you as, as we often say, you get the, you get the elected re representatives that you deserve, and there was a bit of that Santos story that sort of felt like, yeah, this is sort of he says a lot about twenty twenty three or the twenty twenties at least. Exactly. And this is why I think the, the precedent cuts both ways, right? Like expelling him does set a precedent, particularly uh, when a, a criminal conviction hasn't been met. There's only been two instances of corruptive behaviors being expelled, and they both came with criminal convictions. But the precedent also cuts the other way in that if you don't expel someone who clearly, clearly, clearly has corroborated uh, and, and proven misdeeds, endless uh, amount of lying that can consistently keeps popping up, like he's clearly unfit for the job, and we know that. But if you just keep him in Congress, that precedent is set, too, that you can get away with that. 
And and to your point about this being the 2020s and, and this being a symptom, the more you do that, the more you're going to get that, right? Like if we know anything about politics and politicians in general, they're going to take every inch that you give them. And if you say that this this type of behavior um, it doesn't warrant or, or can can still lead to you serving in, in the hollowed Congress halls, then then you're going to get people that don't see that as a deterrent anymore and they don't see it as an actual punishment. And so they're incentivized to keep doing that bad behavior and do it and get worse and to, to further degrees. Yeah, you can grift your way right in, right, right into the gig. What uh, I guess there's going to be a special election coming up to replace him. I gather the governor has to announce that pretty soon. I mean, this this is probably a lesson not just in America, but for listeners anywhere, Canada included, um, about making sure that you know who you're voting for, right? That's the other thing. I mean, um, democracy is a privilege and a right, but it's also a privilege. And sometimes, you know, I, I know there there's a bit of a news vacuum where Santos was elected. Maybe people weren't paying attention. It's very polarized now. So if you're wearing the right the right team colors, people may just vote for you without looking into you too, too much. But it is a reminder that... Um, that you should research the person that you're voting for, regardless of whether you like that party or not. Exactly. And and we've never had more available information to us, right? Like a lot of this, uh, especially the, the early wrongdoings with his resume lying and the fact that he just had a history that just seemed to have more questions than answers. A lot of that was to be found by just investigative entrepreneurial reporters. And we've never had more of those folks with more access to information. And so the avenues are there. It's just up to us to 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 seek them out, to reward those type of of good faith actors who are telling us maybe things we don't want to hear, but will protect us in the long run, or at the very least, protect the, the integrity of the institutions from preventing people like this from, from getting that. Casey, thank you so much. Thank you. Speaking of feeling good, dopamine is one of the most important neurotransmitters in your brain. We often think of it as something related to pleasure, right? How the brain reacts to gratification. And that's true. Uh, dopamine acts on areas of the brain to give you feelings of pleasure, satisfaction, and motivation, but it's actually a whole lot bigger than that. It has a role to play in controlling memory, mood, sleep, learning, concentration, movement, other bodily functions. It's also responsible for motivation, productivity, and focus. Uh, when dopamine levels are too low, we can feel sluggish, unmotivated, unenthusiastic. And as my next guest puts it, what it really is about is making the future better than the present. In other words, it motivates us because we're chasing that dopamine high and we know to get it, we have to change whatever our present is. Now, sometimes that's a great thing. Often that can be a great thing. Gets you up off the couch, right? But it can also be a bad thing. If we chase it too much, if we overuse it, it can leave us feeling dissatisfied, unhappy, miserable, and constantly seeking that next rush and never being satisfied with it when we get there. So how can we use dopamine to its full potential? Uh, Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at George Washington University. He's also co-author of a great book called The Molecule of More, how a single chemical in your brain drives love, sex, and creativity and will determine the fate of the human race. Uh, and uh, Daniel Lieberman joins me now. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is such a, a, a because we've been talking about dopamine a lot on the show recently, but always in relation to, say, kids and phones or social media. And it's sort of taken on this idea of being something kind of negative, but also very immediate. And what's interesting about your book, of course, is that it turns out it's far, so much more than that. It's, 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 so, it's such a bigger part of us than that. 
It really is. People tend to think about dopamine as being the reward molecule, something that gives us pleasure when we do something perhaps indulgent. But it is so much more than that. It's really the neurotransmitter in the brain that orients us to the future. And so not only does it give it pleasure when we anticipate something that's going to help us, it also gives us energy, motivation, and the ability to plan. Yeah. I often think of it as the, I'm just not satisfied gene, which I know, which I know is probably not the right one, but it feels like that it's what propels us to want more. Absolutely. Being satisfied is a wonderful thing, but you're not going to get anything done. And so dopamine is what nature has given us to, in a way, um, make us unhappy for the purpose of making it more likely we're going to survive, reproduce, and pass along our genes. This must have been with us for a very, I mean, the, the way we exist today is so different from how we've existed over over millennia uh, that we must be just trying to catch up with what with what the dopamine tells us to do versus what we need to be doing in this in the world we live in now. You know, it's a major problem. We evolved under an environment of severe scarcity. We were always on the brink of starvation, and now that we're not there anymore, now that we can fulfill our needs in so many ways. And often so easily, for example, with a cell phone, dopamine can get out of hand and it can take over our lives and lead us down dark paths. Oh, then, I mean, if, if we look at sort of, you, you talk about a couple of different states that we exist in and where dopamine thrives, right? Dopamine is about things we don't have. It's about the future. It's about things we can't touch now versus what we can touch now. Um, how does that work? How does that work in the brain? What's going on? Our society really encourages us to be dopamine focused, to be focused on the future. What do I want? What do I need? What don't I have now? How can I make my life better? And part of this is because this is what drives corporations. They need to make us feel unsatisfied, even unhappy, in order to sell us stuff that they convince us will make our lives better. And, and you know, there's a tendency to say, oh, is dopamine good? Is dopamine bad? It's neither and both. But we need to learn that sometimes it's good to be in dopamine, striving, ambitious, trying to make things better. But sometimes we need to come out of dopamine and let other brain chemicals have their way. I call these the here and now chemicals. And that allows us to enjoy the hard things we've worked for, be present in the moment with loved ones, and uh, really enjoy uh, everything that we have right now. Because I've heard you point out in, in other interviews that uh, that cruel irony that it's the person with the beautiful cliff top house that least enjoys the beautiful cliff top house or the beach house or wherever it may be. That's right. The business executive who has sacrificed her entire life to get to the top and now she's wealthy. She's got a beautiful house and she's sitting out on her private beach and she's got her laptop open and she's working. She has no idea about the beauty all around her. And that's one of the ironies of dopamine. Yeah. You also bring up something that I thought was really interesting about, about how dopamine exists for us and just how, how to explain it, which is the, the idea of anticipation. And I think you use a great A.A. Uh, a. Milne version. One that I've always loved is there was, and I can't remember who it is now, I'll have to go back and look. There was quite a famous, uh, someone who wrote quite extensively about traveling, a French writer in the 19th century, who went on one big trip went on pack, packed his you know his suitcases and all that's trunks and all the things you have to pack back then and I gather he went to North Africa and absolutely hated it he absolutely hated the he hated the arriving he just liked the anticipation of the travel uh and then he I don't think he ever really traveled ever again and I thought that was one of those things about how dopamine works it's the anticipation 
That's right. That that reminds me of the famous saying, to travel hopefully is better than to arrive. Indeed. And, and traveling hopefully is wonderful, but there's something kind of dark about that saying. Um, and, and that is that as soon as we get the thing that we've striven for so hard, the pleasure disappears and we've got to go on for the next to the next thing. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it's nice to have that feeling of hopefulness, of anticipation, but I think that we also need to cultivate the enjoyment of the satisfaction of these urges and desires. Do you get the sense that because of, I mean, we talk about dopamine all the time these days when it comes to the sort of those instant pleasures of likes on social media and the way that it fosters a certain polarization because the more extreme you are, the more you get that dopamine rush online and so on. Do you feel like we've become even, I mean, the way you've written this book is really to try to get us to understand what dopamine is doing and how to harness it in a better way. And yet it feels like we're actually traveling down the wrong path at this very time. I think we are, you know, it kind of reminds me of AA, Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous, they sometimes say you got to hit bottom before you're ready to change. And, and in some ways, it feels like we are approaching that bottom. Uh, when social media first came out, everybody was euphoric about it. And um, it, it seemed like innovation in other areas of technology came to a grinding halt as all of the brains in Silicon Valley started focusing on social media that really doesn't deliver a whole bunch of benefit. Anyway, um, they hired a lot of smart people to make it as addictive as they possibly could. And boy, were they successful. Uh, they managed to ruin tons of lives and people are starting to notice. So it may be that we are at or near that rock bottom that AA talks about. And people are starting to lift up their heads from their phones and say, you know what? Uh, this isn't life. Doom scrolling is one that you point out as being sort of the the quintessential example. Because often what, what was interesting is when you talk about the parapersonal, which is sort of your your individual space, what's around you, right? What you can touch and control versus your your sort of your uh external space. Uh the phone exists in a different realm because uh you call I think the extra personal space. The phone feels like it's in your parapersonal space, but it's not, right? It's carrying you somewhere else. And you've talked about the impacts of sort of dopamine on things like doom scrolling or, or just doing things we know that aren't right for us, but we continue to do them. That's right. I, I mean, I'm guilty of doom scrolling. You, 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 there's some place where you found an interesting article. And, and of course, the most interesting articles are the one that directly impact you. And that's what stimulates the most dopamine. And in some ways, um, that's like an animal finding a nut in a tree. We're always going to go back to that tree courtesy of dopamine. So you find an interesting article uh, and you say, well, maybe there's another interesting article in here. And you're scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. There's nothing, but it's an infinite scroll. Uh, one of the most diabolical inventions there is. There's no end. And so that hope that you're going to find something that's going to stimulate dopamine again keeps you going as you notice you're becoming more and more unhappy, more dysphoric. But in spite of knowing you're doing something that's making you unhappy, dopamine doesn't let you stop. 
Oh, when you point that out, that I mean the the the, the squirrel and the and the tree and the nut. I I feel like you're right because your body automatically knows I don't really need to be reading this article about some politician I don't like. But you do. Not only do you read the article, you then read all the comments to see who's arguing about it, and so you can agree with the ones who agree with you and disagree with the ones who don't who don't agree with you. And it becomes this endless. You're right. It's the it's the squirrel going back to the tree again and again and again. How 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 awful to recognize that. Yeah, you know, it kind of reminds me of the way um, Coca-Cola used to put cocaine in their soft drinks. Right. Uh, and and I imagine that must have been incredibly popular, but eventually people realized it was dangerous. They had to replace it with caffeine. Maybe something like that is going to happen with social media. People are going to realize that it's not really a free choice that people are exercising when they use this. There is at the very least manipulation uh, and, and perhaps even some compulsion. When we uh, when we look at at how to better control dopamine, then because I think you're right, we're we're addicted to it for a reason, right? It feels good, or at least we anticipate that it will feel good, or, or it's telling us we're going to feel good if we do something. Uh, but how do you harness it when we seem to be such um, so incapable of controlling it at times? I do want to point out that dopamine does make us feel good, right? But that's the carrot there's also a stick and that is that dopamine can also cause us anxiety. Uh, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my girlfriend? Uh, are people going to look down on me because I'm not wearing the latest fashions? So um, it controls us with carrots and sticks trying to keep us oriented to the future. But as we discussed, that's not healthy. And I think that the first step to getting under control is to simply pay attention. As you're going through your day, stop and uh, take your psychological temperature and, and say, am I in dopamine? Am I working for the future? Or am I in here and now? Am I enjoying the present? If you're at work, it's not a bad idea to be in dopamine. But after work, when you're at home, sitting around the dinner table with your family, you probably want to drop down into here and now. Don't think about what you're going to do tomorrow. Don't think about that project that's due. Open up your ears and give your full attention to your loved ones. It's something we don't do enough, but it is enormously powerful in terms of delivering a happy and satisfying life. Yeah. I mean, I, it, clearly you'd understand that someone in my role suffers from that all the time because I get a dopamine rush when I see something that I think is really interesting, such as your book. Then I find you, then I email you, and then you email me back and say, sure, I'll do it. And I get a rush out of that, right? So it's very hard to put that all down and say, okay, I'm not going to pay any attention to it over the weekend. I'll just stop. Um, I, yeah. yeah, I totally get that. When I'm writing, I'm constantly looking for stuff to put in the book. Right. And, and so I'm like a scavenger, always looking around, always looking around. It's so exciting. It's so pleasurable, but uh, it's a bit too seductive. It can be. You've often mentioned doing things sort of with your hands or maybe just doing, I run one of the things, or walk, you know, just getting your mind out of it, getting getting yourself out of that dopamine reward cycle is important, good and bad. That's right. We can activate our here and now brain chemicals by engaging with our bodies. And um, in terms of the amount of um, brain area dedicated to the different parts of the body, uh, the hands are one of the most important. And, and, you know, with all this technology, the things we do with our hands, gardening, knitting, woodworking, uh, all of those kinds of things have kind of fallen out of favor. And that's not good for our health. Uh, I think we need to have a return to 
atoms and molecules as opposed to bits and bytes. Yeah, it makes sense. So when when you look then at uh, at the motivation for for writing this, and and I know you've talked about it a lot over the past few years, and now uh, as we as we move on through twenty twenty three, I think you're right. I think we're a lot more aware of of the the both the benefits and the perils of dopamine. Uh, what would you like to see happen then? I mean, clearly this was you don't sit down and write something like this without it being both to raise awareness and as a call to arms, right? Yeah, what I would like to see is uh, people really thinking about happiness and their own values. It's so easy in the hustle and bustle of daily life uh, with so many things on Netflix and so many things on YouTube and Instagram to just constantly be bombarding ourselves with superficial stimulation and not, not really taking stock and saying, am I happy? Is this what I want? Is this consistent with my values or what even are my values? You know, uh, it's so easy to say, well, this celebrity's values are the same as mine. I'm just going to turn off my brain and accept everything that they say. So I I'd really like there to be less of a focus on getting things, um, material things, likes, attention and all of that, and, and more on genuine happiness. Because, you know, we read about these these social media influencers. And these days, that's like the number one career goal for young people. And they're miserable. Um, tragically, we, we, we've seen suicides among these young, beautiful, brilliant people. Um, the kinds of things many people are pursuing do not lead to happiness. And with the holidays coming, well said. The timing is great on that one. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure.